Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you guys again. Uh, it's been almost a month since I've been able to, to be with you in this way. I've been sitting kind of with you and worshiping with you and hearing from our church planters, uh, who did a fantastic job, by the way, if you've been here over the last three weeks. Uh, it was just incredible to hear from them through God's word and their heart and what they're going to be doing in the city. If you've missed those, uh, they are online, but uh, just a quick kind of summary. As a church, we believe wholeheartedly in collaborating with other uh, gospel-centered churches in our city so that we can see gospel saturation. Uh, and what we mean by that is we desire for every man, woman, and child to be able to hear and have opportunity to respond to the gospel truth in our city. Where it would be hard for you one day to leave your house in, in the city in the, of Winston-Salem, the surrounding area, and not have a meaningful gospel interaction. That's our goal. That's why God has us here. And, and so we want to collaborate with churches. We want to plant churches. We want everybody to have a local church where they can be known, where they can know people, where they can be loved, where they can be discipled, and where they can disciple others. Uh, and so planting other churches in our city is, is a, a huge passion and heart's desire for us. And so we had three uh, couples that over the last three weeks that are going to be planting in our city in the coming days uh, to kind of present and bring God's word to you. And so uh, that's what's been going on in the Multiply series of the last three weeks. But now we're entering into a new series, a summer series through the Beatitudes. And so typically we just go through books of the Bible. And so we start in chapter one, verse one, give some background and those different kinds of things and just march right through. Uh, but this summer, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And the Beatitudes is what this is known as. And I'll read it for us just in a second. And this morning, um, as we're just kind of scratching the surface on this series, because what we're going to be doing is just taking one of the Beatitudes every week, uh, and just kind of dissecting it. And so each week we'll take one of the Beatitudes that we're about to read. And so this morning is, is just kind of if you think to yourself, when are we getting to the practical stuff? What does it mean to be poor in the spirit? What does it mean to mourn? All of those different kinds of things. Guess what? You have to come back. You have to come back for that. Uh, because what I'm going to do this morning is just to give us an overview and kind of set the stage for what is happening. And so let's read the text together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, speaking of Jesus. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were born before you. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this time that we have together to, to hear from, from kids leading us in worship and just how beautiful that was for my own heart and 
And God, I'm so thankful that you are continually working, that the work that you have done is not in the past, that you are a reality that you did create, that you did make us to have community with you, that you did restore us as we rebelled, that you came and you lived and you died and you rose from the grave to defeat everything that is defeating us and you bring us by your grace back into community with you and we can place our faith in you and have freedom in you and walk in truth in you that we can know who we are and where we belong and what we're created to do all because of your grace. And God, I'm thankful that you are still working and that there is a young generation that's coming up that led us in worship this morning and you're still saving and you're still moving and you're still active. God, I pray that you would be so in our own hearts this morning, that you would just move powerfully in each of us, that you would speak to us through your word because God, every single one of us, what we desperately need is to hear from you. And maybe there are people in this room or watching at home online this morning that have never heard from you, that doubt you, that are, that are skeptic of your reality. And Lord, this morning, I pray that you would speak to them in a way that only you can, that you would awaken their hearts and minds to see you, to know you, to understand the truth of who you are and what you offer and the grace that you give and the salvation that can only come from you. And God, for those of us that know and love you, would you make us more like you? Would we desire you in deeper ways? Would we desire righteousness and holiness? And so, Lord, we give this time to you and just ask that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think just for a moment this morning about what you value. Every single one of us has values in life. These are things that that we kind of believe if we value them in the right way or we don't value these vices. So we we have these values, these maybe virtues, we would consider them our vices. Um, And we value these things or devalue things because we think that by valuing or devaluing that they'll give us or produce for us the life that we long to live, everything that we desire. So all of us have in our minds something that is good, something that is negative, and we put value on things to bring about some sort of effect in our lives. And so I want you to think just for a moment about what you actually value. What is it? And you're just speaking to your own self, so you don't have to just think, I'm in church, so of course I just value Jesus over everything, right? I hope that that is true. And that's certainly the desire and the goal, and that's where we live in the most freedom and and understand who we are in the greatest way. But I want you to be honest with yourself this morning. What is it that you actually value? Every single one of us values something. We have these thoughts and beliefs, these ideas, these preferences that we believe will bring about the life that we want. Some of them in our culture, especially in in a culture of kind of social media, uh, some of these values we've actually boiled down to little things that we can tweet out, right? And there are these little mantras almost uh, that we kind of hold on to. And so all of us kind of have maybe these little mantras. And so I Googled uh, some things that we just typically kind of think, and I looked at a lot of your Facebook pages and found a whole lot of mantras, right, um, that we hold on to, these values in life, things like treat others the way that you want to be treated. It's a good value. It's a good thing for us to believe. Or I actually like this one, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless we twist it into the gospel, but it's hustle hard and stay humble, right? Hustle hard, stay humble. What about we're all human 
and everyone makes mistakes, right? It's like that, that person that just constantly wants to remind everybody, hey, we're not perfect, and so don't have high expectation of me, right? <laughs> like, I just I always want to come in over the bar, not under it. And so, hey, we all struggle. We all make mistakes. You can do anything that you put your mind to. Activate self-confidence and push away fear. How about this one? Live your truth. Only you can change your life. Leave it all on the field. This was a big one for me growing up. No regrets. You are what you think yourself to be. Have you ever heard that? Like the person who thinks they can and the person who thinks they can't, you're both right. What about even in the church? Just let go and let God. Or God said it, and so I believe it. And we could go on and on and on, and certainly many of these things maybe even come to your head as we talk about these things, and they sound amazing. And there's a reason that we kind of grab hold of these. Every single thing that I just said, like it sounds really good, like it'll preach. Like it may or may not have any truth to it at all, but we kind of grab hold of these things because all of us know and understand that we need to value something to, to walk into the life that we don't currently have because we all understand that things are broken, even our value systems. But we all desire salvation from that brokenness. So we have these values. And when we hear things like this, it's like, man, that sounds really good, right? Share, share, tweet. Like we just want everybody to know that sounds so deep and profound. And so I'm going to grab on to this because it just seems so amazing. We all have these things. And while some of them are kind of we put into these little mantras, some of them are a lot more complicated, are they not? And so we have these beliefs and values that we hold on to, but we might not even really be able to articulate them. It's just all of our preferences, all of our history, all of our past, our experiences are all coming together. And we have these belief systems, these values that we hold to these things that help us define who we are and how we want to live. They also help us judge who other people are and how we want to interact with them, these values that we hold to. But here's the hard reality, and it's kind of a harsh reality, but just because we value something, how many of you know that it doesn't mean that that value actually has the ability to bring about the desired effect? Just because you value it doesn't mean that it's actually going to bring about what you long for it and desire for it to bring about. And this is where I want to introduce another term for us to kind of wrestle with a little bit this morning. And this is the term of a true virtue. Virtues are a little bit different than values. We can certainly value true virtues, but true virtues can be there whether we value them or not. Virtues by nature aren't preferences or, or things that have captured our minds or our feelings. They're not just things that sound really good and so we hold on to them and believe them, but they're these moral truths that I would like to suggest this morning actually have the ability to bring about or produce an outcome, that they can actually affect life, and they're extremely important because this philosopher and professor uh, Boston College and King's College in New York, Peter Kraft, he has said this, values or ethics that exist outside of true virtue are illusions. They don't actually have the ability to bring about desired effect. 
So what are these true virtues? And, and so I just want to ask again, what are the things that you value? And as you're processing that and thinking through that, what are the things that you place worth on in life to try to bring about a desired outcome? What are you striving for? What are you believing in to bring life? And is it truth and can it bring about desired effect? Or, or is it this illusion? Is it just the, these values we're chasing after that seemingly are just a continued kind of in the desert, longing for salvation, wanting hope and life and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and happiness. And we continue to value things for that, that once we get to them, just turn out to be a mirage. They never actually can produce a desired effect. Or is what we value something of truth, of true virtue, or is it an illusion? One does have the power to affect change, and the other does not. So let me just say that we need, I believe, a, a real revolution, a real reformation in the things, in our thinking, in our believing, and in our value systems. They need repair. And I'm not just talking about in our culture, but also in our church. Study after study after study continues to reveal that there's very little difference in how people in the church and how people in the, the natural culture actually relate to the world and one another. So we might believe something different in the church, but those beliefs are having a really hard time making it from our minds to our hearts, affecting the way that we actually live. So we need this revolution. We need reformation, repair in our value systems. And this isn't a new thing, right? This isn't a new thing at all. You can actually trace it. And if we had time this morning, because I nerd out and I've had three weeks to prepare, um, I've read all kinds of books of philosophy, and you can trace it through Plato's thinking, Aristotle's thinking, um, Socrates, and, and on down, Descartes, and all of the thinkers of our time and every time period, every era of time, we have sought to bring about this solution to the problem that we have of, of understanding that we have values in life to produce an effect, but that there's, there's a major problem and we can't ever seem to understand what we should actually value to bring about the effects that we want. What's the actual solution? And what's the treatment, the ongoing treatment for the problem that we have? These are questions that have been asked of every philosopher, people, men and women in every time period all throughout history. Because we understand that there's a problem. We understand that, we, we, that there's a cause of that problem. We need to determine what that is and a solution and a continued treatment, as I said. And you can trace it. It's all throughout human history. The difference today, I think, and, and a reason that I would actually say that even though this has been going on and this is nothing new, I do believe it's going on today, maybe with some more disastrous effects than it has in the past. Listen to this. Until now, as Aristotle noticed in the past and until recently, we still uh, believed, is that there are three reasons that we actually seek truth or we have values Three reasons, and, and to answer these questions of what's the problem, what's the cause, what's the solution, what's the treatment, here's what he says. The most important one of these three reasons to seek truth is the, important of truth it's, the importance of truth itself, virtue. 
says the number one reason that we should seek knowledge and have value on something to bring about life is that, it, that truth itself is important, that virtue is important. Secondly, he says that there is a moral action that follows it. So we need to understand what truth actually is. And then the second reason to understand truth that we put value on the right things is to act upon the truth that we know. And then the third thing he says is that we would, and least important, he says, is that we would have the power or ability to make things, technology to help us live out truth, that we would have know-how. But the reason that I would say that we're still struggling with these things, but it's having maybe a, a deeper effect on us today, is that we've really flipped that upside down. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, his book, he said that there's something which unites magic and applied science while separating them from the wisdom of early ages. So he's talking about what Aristotle just said and what we've believed till recent years. He says this, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of the human life was how to conform the soul to the objective reality. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of men. In other words, we have begun in our culture to seek to control nature over seeking to control self. We've come to a place where we've understood that everything that we value in the world is not being able to actually bring about the desired effect. So let's not try to change ourselves into an understanding of deep reality and truth, but let's just change truth so that anything we desire is reality and makes it okay. Our hearts determine what is real, what we value. And so our value system just continues to be broken and it can't bring about the desired effect. And when we do that, here's the real problem of that. When we do that, we're kind of throwing true virtue out the window. And when we throw true virtue out the window, see if you've noticed this in our culture, we actually also throw out true vices. We begin to see everything as a level playing field. There is nothing that is actually wrong. There is nothing that is actually right. And whatever you feel is right. Everything is right that is right in your own eyes. Justice Anthony Kennedy said this, at the heart of liberty, it is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning in the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And that is a weight, listen to me, that none of us can actually bear. But that's the belief of what true value is and freedom is and meaning it is to be pursued in. And this is the world and the culture that we live in where we're not really sure what to value. We don't know what true virtues are. We've thrown out true vices and everything that is right is only right if it's right in your own eyes. And the sad reality of that is that when we realize that or when that's the world that we live in, then we still realize that humanity is lost. And we're still seeking salvation, but we're refusing to believe that outside of us there could be a salvation at all. And we are absolutely lost. We're the ones that are seeking hope and have no ability within us to define what is actually true and what is actually a vice. 
So this is a really good time for us to have a but God moment. Because in the world that we're living in, like in Ephesians chapter 2, where all of us are lost and all of us are seeking our own way, but God comes into the picture. Christ actually comes and lives for us and dies on the cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion. He opens our eyes by his grace to see true virtue and reality and freedom and life and everything that we're supposed to base our lives on. We find ourselves in. He opens our eyes to, and here's what he says, the problem is sin and it leads to death. The solution is salvation by his grace, his sacrifice for us. The treatment is faith. That we can walk in true freedom and community with God as we were created to know and to walk in. And that grace transforms our hearts into desiring the truth. And we can be not only able to see true virtue, but begin to walk in the truth. Listen, that is the blessed life. That's the life that every single one of us longs for now and in eternity. And this is what Jesus is introducing to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we actually see the greatest sermon ever preached. It takes about 15 minutes to read the whole thing. And some of you are going, why don't you preach like that? And here's what I'll say to that. One, I'm not Jesus. So it takes me a lot more words to get across the same point. But secondly... I'll also just say that's only the portion that we're getting, all right? It was a lot longer than that, but, but here's what we see. In Matthew 5 through 7, the greatest sermon ever preached is the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins with what we call the Beatitudes. These are the fruit of understanding truth. I, I want us to understand this and to get this. The fruit of understanding truth, which allows us to really live for what matters, to put value on what can affect the life that we long to live and the eternity we were created to have. So in chapter 4, if we go back just to chapter 4, just before what we just read, we learn the setting of what's happening as Jesus uh, begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes in chapter 5, which we just read. Jesus has been going around and he's been teaching and he's been healing in the synagogues. And so he's been traveling around, he's preaching, he's healing, his reputation now precedes who he is. And now we see in chapter 5 that there's a multitude of people that are gathering around him. They're following him around in every city or town that he goes to. People continue to gather around him. They want to hear what he has to say. And some of them just want to be healed. And so as Jesus is doing this, people are gathering around him. And it's very important for us, and I just want to kind of take this little side note, though it does pertain to the text, just to say that that these are people from all over the place with all different kinds of backgrounds. I want us to understand what's actually happening in the setting here. So you've got people from different cultures, potentially different first languages, different ideals, different philosophies of life. All of these people that might even be enemies in their, in their natural settings are following Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. They're wanting to be healed by Jesus. They're interested in this person, Jesus, and everything that he is walking around teaching and doing. But you have this collection of a multitude of people from different thought backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds. Some of them are disciples and believers. Some of them are skeptics and doubters. And all of these people 
people are coming together. And I want to point that out because we might naturally just kind of think to ourselves when we read the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is just in this really peaceful setting, probably in this really nice cathedral somewhere. He's probably wearing a robe, right? And this incredible traveling worship band has just finished leading worship and And now Jesus is getting up and everybody's like, really just, man, I'm ready to hear what Jesus has to say. I've got my notebook out. I've got my phone ready to tweet. And I'm going, I already know I'm going to agree with everything that he says. I'm going to, I'm going to write it all down for later. I'm going to wish my friend was here to hear it. And, and all of these kinds of things that we do in the church, we might kind of think this is what was happening here, but that's not what was happening here. Jesus is gathering all of these people from all places. He's been preaching, as I said, in the synagogue. So the the Pharisees and the religious leaders are following Jesus now, and they're gathering around him, and they're already upset with him. So they're already going, hey, you're disrupting our religion. So they're following him. And then you have others who just want to be healed. You have others that, that believe in totally different things, as I said. So this is the setting of the crowd. And you better believe everybody is confused. Nobody knows what's about to come out of Jesus' mouth. Nobody knows if they're going to like it or hate it. And everybody's coming with a preconceived idea of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to say and what they want Jesus to do. So this crowd has all different kinds of motives, all different kinds of thoughts and ideas, and Jesus is about to give them the core tenets of what it looks like to find yourself in the kingdom of God. To know truth and and to have true virtue and to live for the things that cause the effects that you desire in life and were created to know in him as he created you to have community with him. He says, this is what it looks like to be one with me. These are the tenets, the faith that that brings about action in your life, a heart transformed. And these are the things that he's going to lay out. And so as everybody in the crowd, just like us today, is wondering in life, what do I value? What do I need to put all my worth into? What will actually produce the life that I long for? That crowd is desiring the same exact thing. And the question that they have with this Jesus coming into town and all of them are gathering around is, is he the king? And is he going to bring about a kingdom? And what does it look like for me to live the blessing life? What does it look like for me to be who I long to be, experience what I long to experience? I want to hear from this one, and my hope is that he brings a truth that will transform and change everything. It's not a mirage, but it actually gives life. What is the blessed life? What does it look like? So look what he does. He, he takes the posture of a rabbi He sits down, and then he's going to lay out these core virtues of the faith. And again, this is not, and we have to get this, a pathway to salvation. This is not a list of things that you have to go and do so that you can have salvation and God will be pleased with you. Listen, Jesus, we haven't said this in a while, so I want to say it this morning. God always tells us who we are before he ever tells us what to do. 
that we are who we are outside of Christ and that's why we live in sin or we are who we are because we placed our faith in Christ and by his grace we are saved through his work for us and then our hearts are transformed and we do what we do because of who we are in Christ. So we always live out of our identity. If our identity is Christ, we long to be like him. If our identity is found in self, then we long to be like the world. We pursue our own truths. And so these are not a list of virtues to do to please God. These are a list of things that God says, this is what the heart looks like that is pleased in me. This is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. And so he introduces this unchanging truth, this way of life in him and through him that allows us to discover true humanity and value and why we're actually created and to do all of that in a deep joy that's unshakable. And so Jesus, when you see in verse 1, he sees the multitudes, and I love this. Seeing the crowds, he sees them like a sheep without a shepherd. He goes, I know the need of these people. This morning, Jesus would say, I know your need. I know your thoughts. I know your longings. I know what you're seeking after. I know what you're valuing. I know what you're pursuing for life. And like sheep without a shepherd, he would have compassion on us today as he has on the multitudes here. He looks out at the multitudes and where many of us might run, all all these multitudes of people, and we're going, you don't believe, you're hostile, you're angry, you just want to use me to heal you, you're hoping that I'll give you some words, and then you're not going to judge what I say as though I am God and do it, but you're going to judge what I say by who you are and what you believe God should be, and then you're going to decide what to do because ultimately you are your own God. And so he doesn't run, though, because he is truth. He has compassion on those who are are in need. And so when he sees the multitudes, it says that he goes up onto the mountain. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, he wants them to be able to hear him. But if that's all that we see there, then we're missing something really important that sets the stage for the Beatitudes here that we're going to go over in the next handful of weeks together, because something much deeper is happening here. See, Jesus goes up on the mountain, and what we need to know is that Matthew is actually written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And what you'll see in the book of Matthew and his gospel are these little hints to connect the Jewish people to Jesus as the Messiah. And what the Jewish audience would hear as soon as they see that Jesus went up onto the mountain and then they would begin to put together other things that have happened in the first handful of chapters in the book of Matthew is that Jesus going up onto the mountain would actually connect Jesus to Moses. See, Matthew is the only book that actually does this, but he opens up with the children being slaughtered in Bethlehem, that the, the King Herod had heard that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was coming, that he was born. He gets very upset that this king might come out of Bethlehem. And so he sends troops to take out all of the children under two years old. And we would see that happening in Egypt as well with the Israelite people and and the Pharaoh uh, destroying, taking out. And that's how Moses is actually found. Remember the story of Moses when he's found in the river because his mother puts him there so that his life is not taken. And so 
we're starting to make this connection here. Matthew's also the only gospel that would reference Jesus actually coming out of Egypt, just as the Israelite people would be set free out of Egypt and slavery. The Israelite people would spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus would spend 40 days in the wilderness. As the Israelite people fell to temptation, Jesus would overcome temptation with what? God's truth. This is the importance of understanding truth and being able to live the life that you desire in the truth or falling into things that are untrue and it never actually satisfying you. Then we know that Moses ascends onto the mountain to get the commandments from God as Jesus sits here on the mountain to listen, present the life that he has come to give by completing the law on our behalf. Jesus is setting the stage here for people to know who he is. And then he says in verse 3, blessed are. And these are the words that everybody longed to hear. So everybody there, as I said, they're they're kind of wondering what Jesus is going to say. How's he going to lay all this out? And is he going to give us this truth? Are we going to find value here? And then he says it. The first words out of his mouth, blessed are. And at that point, we got to be on the edge of our seat because if we know who this Jesus is and what he's been teaching and what he's been doing and what he says he's going to do, then these are the words that we showed up for the sermon to hear. Blessed are. And so we're getting our pens ready and we're about ready to take some notes because every single one of us wants to know what is the blessed life. We're all searching for that. We're all putting value in things to bring that about. And so before all eight of these things that he would say are what defines the blessed life of one who has placed their faith in Christ. He says, blessed are. And this is a critical word for us to understand as we get into these in the coming weeks because so much of this word, just like the word love for us, you guys know how the word love for us has just kind of lost a lot of value because we use it for everything. I just, I love ice cream, I love my wife, I love my dog, right? And we just say it, we use the same word. And obviously because of our culture, we can understand we're putting different value emphasis on different things in the way that we say it and what we plug into the, the whole point of the, 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 the sentence or the phrase that we're using. Blessed's the same way. And, and mostly, and most importantly, because today we think of the word blessed as what we have and not who we are. And this is something that has to be flipped upside down if we're going to truly understand the blessed life. It's not about what we do and what we have and what we gain or what we lose, but it's all about who we are and what Christ has done and what he has gained and what he gives by grace. The blessed life is defined by who we are, not what we have. If we define it by who, what we have and not who we are, then we reduce it down to just wealth and health and relationship and, and all of the things that we want and getting the things that we want. And then we call that being blessed, right? So that's why so many of us were like, got a new job, hashtag blessed, right? Went to the doctor, totally healthy, hashtag blessed. Post a cute picture of our family, hashtag blessed. And that's basically what the word has been reduced down to in our culture. But it's much richer than that. Dallas Willard says this, The word blessed refers to the highest type of well-being for humans, and this is how it would have been heard in the first century. 
It's a term that the Greeks used to reveal a blissful existence that belongs to the gods. So when Jesus uses the word blessed are, what the people are hearing in certain backgrounds there is, he is about to give us a transcendent bliss. A bliss that is not based on, a blessedness that is not based on what we have or who we are, or where we're from or what we do or what we accomplish or what we lose. But something that transcends that based out of who we are, something that can't be taken away and something that can't be added to. It's not measured by our circumstances. So the word blessed here means transcendent bliss, or it can mean two other things. One is happy. Now, I like that word, but I don't like that word because of the way we use the word happy. Happy for us oftentimes, and this is not the way it's described in Scripture, Happiness and joyful are the same thing, but the way we use happiness is kind of this circumstantial kind of thing. I had a happy moment, um, and so if I have a a sad moment, I'm not happy. If I have a good moment, I am happy, Uh, but it can mean the word happy in the sense of uh, 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 happiness in who we are that cannot be taken away. It's an eternal joy, all right? So it can be transcendent bliss. It can be the word happy or one of my favorites. It could also mean congratulations. So Jesus is saying, if you are in me, this is who you are. This is what your heart is transformed into. So congratulations. Congratulations to those who are poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of God. And it changes the way that we read it, does it not? So as they hear this word come out of Jesus' mouth, they're not hearing what we might hear if we're just thinking about blessed They're not thinking health and wealth and and prosperity and family and all of those different kinds of things. They're thinking about a transcendent bliss. Congratulations for something that's been given to you, not something that you have to earn. A joy, a fulfillment that Christ is the virtue worth all of your value. That Christ is worth everything in your life. So he says, blessed are. And now everyone is on the edge of their seats. Everyone is desiring to hear what Jesus is about to say. And when he opens his mouth, everyone thinks, here it is. Like, here's the true virtue. Here's what we're supposed to put all of our life in. This is what's going to make us happy. This is what's going to allow us to celebrate and be congratulated. This is true life. This is worth. This is what we're to value. But then wait a minute, because like we read these words a couple of minutes ago, and like if you remember everything that Jesus says is the blessed life, those eight things that he says, then we would pause and we would just kind of go, the blessed life kind of terrifies me. Like this is so contrary to everything in our culture and what we have created means to be happy, to be fulfilled. To have life and have joy. And we don't say congratulations about these kinds of things. We say, man, I'll pray for you because that stinks. Like it sounds like you're living the pitiful life. Like you need transformation. You need to be transformed. You need your circumstances to change. And we just keep chasing values of the world that never satisfy But when Jesus comes in, even though it's a complete paradox to everything 
that he says, everything he says, the paradox, everything that he says is contrary and in conflict with what we believe. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the weak. We would hear that and think, man, Jesus, like, I love your heart there, but that stuff just won't work. It's not going to give us the blessed life. We can't put true value on those things. And so each of these, as we see them today, they would have seen them then. And Jesus had a vision for the blessed life that he wants us to understand. And so this is what he lays out for us to get. And just like each of us would have kind of a thing that we value already, and when I asked that question at the beginning, we would kind of lay out kind of the things that we value, maybe family or careers or whatever it may be, not bad things. But we all bring to the table something we believe we need to value to have the life that we long to have that God created us to only find in him. And in this day, it would have been exactly the same. The Pharisees believed that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in by obedience to the law. The Sadducees, who would have been in the crowd, they were realists, and the Romans were in control, and it was their kingdom. So they just wanted to affirm and, and just appreciate and, 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 and just kind of be accepted into the kingdom. So they did whatever was required to be a part of the Roman kingdom. The Aseans, who would have been in the crowd, they wanted to cancel out everything. They thought everything was terrible, and they just wanted to deconstruct it all, and they end up moving into the wilderness to try to start over. The zealots were all about political revolution and overthrowing the Romans and so on and so on. And every single one of us has a value system we believe we need to hold on to. And here comes Jesus shaking it to the core. Because I, I, I truly probably would be able to just bet everything that I have that when I said, what do you value at the beginning of our time together? None of you were thinking, I value being poor in spirit. Like, right, none of you are going to show up to a job interview and they're going to ask you how you would uh, just kind of um, put yourself on display or tell me about your character or who you are. And you're going, well, I'm poor in spirit. I'm really meek. I like to mourn. <laughs> right? Like, well, what do you do in your free time? Oh, I like to hunger and thirst after righteousness. <laughs> right? Like, none of us are going to put that kind of stuff on what we would value. And not that we should say those kinds of things, but when we see these, we immediately understand if Jesus is truth, then there must be some other standard of transcendent bliss than the things of the world that we typically put our value in. That in God's economy, he has a different value system that actually allows us to see the world differently, but more clearly. See, Jesus is saying, because I came, you can be saved. And we don't have to form to the image of broken creation, but we can be transformed into the image of our creator and reveal that redemption. So congratulations to the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom. Those that realize I bring nothing to the table and I cannot save myself, but I in Christ alone can be saved through his work on my behalf. Congratulations to those who mourn. 
because you understand that in God's kingdom, everything is made new and there's no sin and there's no death and there's no heartache and there's no tears. And when you see heartache and you see tears and you see people reject God, even though you have a transcendent bliss and happiness in him that cannot be added to or taken away, you mourn for the reality that God and everyone is, is not living in his kingdom and revealing his kingdom and understanding who he is. Congratulations to the meek. Those who leverage their power and gifts and position and possession to serve and to love and to reveal the true king and true kingdom. Congratulations to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who desire to follow after Christ and to be like him. Congratulations to the merciful, for they have received so much mercy that in a broken painful, mean world, we show mercy like no one has ever experienced because of what we receive in Christ. Congratulations to the pure in heart, those who repent of sin and and seek holiness. Congratulations to the peacemakers who desire to see people transformed by grace and their priorities are relationship and love for people over personal vindication. Congratulations to the persecuted. For your reward is in heaven and the kingdom that you live for is to come. And that makes anything that you go through on earth worth the cost of revealing who you are in Jesus. See, these are the gospel truths that we will go through over the next several weeks together. And ultimately, all of these things we can actually be because of what Jesus was for us. See, it's all about Jesus has completed the work for us to be able to walk in him. So you know how you can be rich in spirit? It's because he became poor for you. We are comforted because he mourned for us. We inherit his kingdom because he became meek. We can be filled because he said on the cross, I thirst. We have mercy because he cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can be pure because he said it is finished and we can have peace because he rose from the dead. And so here's what he's saying. Ultimately, the blessed life, church, it is to live like your Savior, to know him, to be saved by him because he has done all for you. You can reveal him in all that you do. This is what you are to value. This is what brings happiness in the blessed life.